Welcome to The Children's Table, a podcast dedicated to the idea that young people have always been participants in history, in literature, in art, and in politics. As three professors who have spent our careers studying the history and culture of childhood, we want to share the questions we have about how adults have imagined what childhood means and how those ideas have shaped the lives of children, for better and for worse. Along the way, we will share the stories of some brilliant, brave, and groundbreaking young people we've gotten to know. I'm Victoria. I'm Anna Mae. I'm Kate. And let's head to the children's table. We're here today with Yumiko Murai, an assistant professor in the Educational Technology and Learning Design Program in Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. Her research involves studying learning environments in order to facilitate learning through making. She's particularly interested in the role of social and cultural contexts in supporting the creative confidence and intrinsic innovation of learners. Among her many fascinating projects, she co-produced the Beyond Rubrics Toolkit, a playful assessment toolkit for maker classrooms at Playful Journey Lab at MIT. She is currently working on several collaborations, among them Shinshu Maker Fellows, Creative Coding Teacher Professional Development, uh, and several other critical making workshops. Hi, Yumiko, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. We are so excited to talk with you, and I think that we are just going to start with an open question. Would you like to tell us something about your, the work you do, what brought you to your work? Yeah. Anything that jumps out in yeah. terms of your life? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Um, so my work is sort of broadly focused on um, supporting the process of learning by making, and Primarily focused on schools, I, I'm very passionate about supporting public school education, but also outside schools as well. And uh, the sort of how I ended up here was I used to be a vocal musical musician, um, so self-taught and sort of touring and singing with other people. But I started to also teach people singing, and I kind of like realized that I, as much as I love music, I love seeing other people change and find their voices through not just like singing by themselves, but sort of like creating this performance and creating shows for other people. And and so that really sort of got me interested in this self-driven, interest-driven learning. And then um, while I was working on at the MIT, I uh, met my mentor, uh, Michelle Resnick, who was really working with children, supporting children's creative learning processes that really sort of connected all the dots for me, um, where what I was really looking for was to support people, like ways to support people learn from creating, expressing themselves, working with other people, and doing a lot of um, other creative work. And there's all the learning that comes out of that process. I currently work with both children and also um, educators. And I'm very passionate about how many different kinds of educators in a different cultural context perceive this approach to learning. Because sometimes in, I'm originally from Japan, for example, and the sort of Japanese school 
traditional Japanese school education really focused on uh, more structured, teacher-driven, one-fits-all kind of style of learning, which is very different from learning by making, learning by creation. And so I am seeing, um, I'm interested in really exploring ways to support those teachers who are interested in bringing in this kind of pedagogy into their teaching and then support their learning. I love it, especially the emphasis on music. I think that's really cool. It really is, and I, I'm just to, to go a little bit deeper on that. And it, um, you know, we at the children's table, we actually had a whole season dedicated to children's play, and we had a separate season dedicated to school, which I think maybe says something. About yeah, we should have done something <laughs> better. With how that. even we are sort of thinking that these are two different things, mm-hmm. um, and we're really. Um, when we were thinking about play, uh, we, I think, you know, we were thinking about it as the way that children make up their own world and their own rules in a place where they have a lot of agency. And then we think of school as sort of a place of restriction or one size fits all. And that's why I want to just dig into a, a little deep at some of the, your, your projects or your scholarship that engages the word play and playful um, when thinking about pedagogy mm-hmm. and work and mm-hmm. even sort of critical stuff. We often, you know, at least, and we're guilty of this, we think of play like that's recess and then there's schoolwork. So can you tell you a little bit more about how in the work you've done you've seen play as doing the work mm-hmm. of like, you know, to, yeah. um, you know, to push up metrics, right? To get, yeah. it, to get it to a sort of legible place where administrators will be like, okay, this play actually is doing yeah. work. It's such a great question, and I think that's like the topic that we always talk with educators. But play used to be our way of learning when we were babies, when we were children. And through exploring without purpose, play, like trying things out, breaking things out, I don't know, like a, pretending someone who is whom you are not and see how it feels. That's all the process that you're learning how this word works and uh, kind of bringing into bringing back to this current time where new technologies are coming out and new things are happening. Like everything is always changing and you it's completely impossible to predict a year ahead what's going to be like in the world you really have to constantly learn what's happening. And so it is really important that we learn like how children learn because it's not like we adults figure out everything and we don't have to learn about anything. We actually really have to constantly interact with the environment and try things out. Like, for example, like I was talking recently with many people about like uh, chat GPT and then now we are in the state of exploring, playing with it, because nobody knows what's good for it or what's bad for it, but, but what's bad of it. And so we have to really play with them. And so it is sort of all my work, all my mentors' work are sort of inspired by the way children learned and we think that the process that children were learn through interacting with things without exploring really helps them find a sort of perspective and things that you probably wasn't thinking about, right? And so like through the process of play, 
when you are planning and structuring the learning processes, you could probably get to the goal that you plan to go, but you probably don't discover other things outside this road. Oh, that's right. Yeah. right. So that I see that there is a lot of good in play, process of play that we can learn from as educators to really bring in this unexpected and personalized, contextualized learning into that their educational processes. That's so interesting. I was wondering if you could talk a little more specifically about a term that we've seen in your work, critical making workshops, and talk about how those kind of operate and how you're using the term critical within that context. Are you using it kind of intentionally to signal something? Yeah, our work on critical making with the BioWearable um, Design Workshop with Dr. Elisa Antal was uh, really inspired by a group of researchers from HCI, um, Human Computer Interactions, who have been really sort of traditionally like design, critical design is a sort of field, very established field where um, people use the design as a method to really gain new perspective about people's lives, people's way of using products, or people's way of being in the space. But then there's a group of researchers who are really sort of started to focus on like maybe not just the design, but the making process, like this physical production processes actually helps you, give you an opportunity to talk with other people about the things that you don't usually talk about or allow you to see the aspects that um, you didn't notice about a product or a space or any kind of, if you're designing a city. And so um, also one of the scholars I always follows and cites, um, Simo Peppert is one of the first scholar who created the computer programming language for children, really focused on this process of learning by making, learning by creation. He always talks about how, for him, it's a programming language, but uh, um, when you are constructing something, that objects that you're constructing represent how you think the world, how you see the world, and so that allows you to really play with it. So because yeah. it's a more concrete format, when you it's just in your head, it's abstract, and other people can't really see what you're thinking, what you're understanding. But if you have this something that you created that represents your thinking, you can work with other people to see if this correct or if this gives you a new perspective. And that's where like new perspective often comes in. Or sometimes your understanding will be refined through those conversations, social processes. And so I think there's a lot of possibility that those processes um, gives you an opportunity to see the aspects of world society that we don't really pay attention to. And I don't, I'm not coming from a sort of critical leadership background, so I don't, I'm still learning that those theories and background and a lot of vast work that's been done in there. But I think there's a lot of connection to, um, to the process of seeing the sort of notion that's not seeing in the surface, discussing the injustices or discussing the cultural background that are affecting the way the society works. I think the making process can contribute to really bring those conversation up through bringing people's understanding and 
way of thinking in a more tangible and visible way. How do you, this is a, uh, just a sort of follow-up question on this. So if you have children who are making things, creating things, solving problems, how do you get them within classroom settings not to think about the grade or the evaluation or the rubric or, you know, how someone's going to assess play? Like, how do you get them to lean into play as a sort of productive, creative space? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think um, one of my work is around boring assessment that fits in this kind of learning by making context. So I've been thinking about that question all the time these days. But I think one of the thing is to really, really create the notion in the classroom that assessment is not just about the end point, which is very challenging. I've been sort of interviewing a lot of educators and educators are always sort of struggling with not just their approach to assessment, but they're discovering that when they try to change the assessment practices, children comes with obsession with grades yeah. and Absolutely. parents, of course. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's a very difficult things to change, but gradually letting them know that the end point is not the emphasis. And so many of the teachers who are exploring assessment with me are really focused on creating a lot of formative assessment point, multiple points during the projects and not just at the end so that the students can stop and pause and think about what they are learning, what they're not doing well, what they need to learn at the, at the next step. And when the sort of final time comes, of course, there's always the end. <laughs> like in the school environment, you have to sort of wrap up sometimes, so even though the projects may not be ending. And then they will really try to acknowledge those process-based learning, learning that happens in the process. And even though at the end something that they created is not working or it's not finished, they will acknowledge how how they solved the problem that they encounter, how they worked with their peers, how they how they took risks when other people are doing very different things. And so really acknowledging those points that they are really, the students went out of their comfort zone, what they already know, what they, what, they, what they believed. Teachers really try to create a space to acknowledge that. And I think that's, that's, that's the role of assessment, I think. And so, but it's a, it's a really a challenging process that I hear that um, teachers express that there's a lot of um, hurdles in the current yeah, system. There must be a lot of anxiety from mm-hmm. the young people about that. Yes, yeah. that's also true. And that's that's something that we sh- we shouldn't be ignoring, too. Right. Like uh, Many of the students are reported to be very unsure when the teachers are not giving them exact instructions or clear assessment that how they're doing. I hear some students expressing frustrations when I interview them. But then I feel that... Um, it's a process, like a process for teachers and students to really learn how are we, how how we define learning in the space. It's not about getting a good grade, but it's about really gaining this good experiences through the class activities. I love it. I wish I had a class like that yeah, when I was young. I mean, it's just so interesting. Just going back to some of the things you said earlier and how we're sort of winding up with assessment is that 
children, like, this is another space where adults can really learn from children. Like, children, as you were saying, naturally do this. Like, see learning as play and take risks and collaborate. And then our education system just sort of tells them, like, that's the wrong way to be. And um, as you were, I was just so convinced by your discussion of how play, you know, sort of playing around is, if we're thinking of outcomes and, we're, you know, which of course, to speaking to the sort of anxiety around grades and jobs, that we need to be able to play in terms of technology. And, and when you mentioned chat GBT, at least the discourse in our <laughs> university has not been playful, <laughs> right? It's not like, let's figure this out. And what does this mean? And what can we do with it? It's like, Here's a new thing. We're terrified of it. Make it go away. <laughs> it doesn't do what we thought we should do. It doesn't do what we doesn't match the skills we have. And so therefore, like let's not do it. Mm -hmm. So I just think that like it, it's kind of philosophical like, that we should enjoy the process and not the product. Like I, think, I just think like in our lives yeah. uh, and as educators, of course, and in academia, like that is such a profound insight. Yeah, I think. Again, we start out that way, as you're pointing out, like children do this naturally, and then they just learn, like, no, there's this end goal, and everything that happens is, you know, so if there's any detours, you're doing something wrong. So I, I'm just really inspired by the work you're doing and sort of the insights it, it brings to, to sort of thinking about our own classrooms, as, as Kate was saying. I'm just wondering, I know you, you're working mostly with not secondary educators, but I'm wondering, like, in your own classrooms here, or if, if you've had any advice for those of us who are teaching in college classrooms, mm -hmm. of how to bring, I think, both making, but I'm really interested in the play. Like, just, because, of course, play is joyful. Yeah. Um, and I think, that, you know, to just go back to Kate's point about anxiety, at least where we are, I don't know how it is here, our students are really anxious. There's not a lot of joy in the learning process. And, you know, I think that's partially for all the reasons we've been discussing. But I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or if you've experimented yeah. with how to bring joy and play into the college classroom as well. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that question. And I'm actually just started working on that topic of what this maker education or maker based learning can have a sort of impact in higher education, sort of starting from my own classroom. And I think... One of the things that I ran that class one time last year for the first time and hoping to continue in the coming coming years. But then I think one of the feedback that I got from the students is that like the second that I stepped into the classroom, like just I felt different. And then, like the reason why was like we sort of situated the classroom in that makerspace in that campus, like in the Burnaby campus in the CFU, they have a new um, library makerspace. And so we decided the, to host that course in that space. And it's not just like, it's not special space where we sit to, to sit and meet, but uh, I often bring this like lords of craft materials, like papers and I don't know, pom-poms and um, <laughs> yeah, like all the ping pong balls and tapes and pens and all the sorts of things. And I always bring that with a cart to every class and just to put it on the table, regardless of whether we use it or not. And then just a sort of trying to bring in playful way of expressing their understanding. And so like, for example, when the students read the, in the class, we introduce a lot of scholarly work around learning by making 
And then we ask students to put together any ways that express what stood out from you. And so that the students will be sort of giving a little bit more bigger space of how to express their learning. So some students will stick to like more traditional form of writing. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Some students take a little more step forward creating for what do you call it? For for comic, for oh. strip comic books. Oh, like four panels. Four panels, comic yeah. strips, expressing their, what she took away from that things. Or we sometimes do a little bit more abstract exercise of like, let's create this like physical abstract statue representing what you have been like taking away from it. And not just, not to not to, ask them to create uh, awesome sculptures, but to use those as a conversation starter. So usually we do those making stuff. And then after that, we do, we always do a reflection session where students will get to explain what they are. Like, so that in that process, there's a lot of good things comes out where, what are the questions they had? What are the things that they felt like a little bit challenged what are the things that they were very excited and so that we can really share some of the questions that really arose through those physical objects and then I think that was a class really tailored around those particular pedagogy but uh, I think in other courses also I think there's a lot of opportunities to bring in different mediums for students express their learning, communicate their learning. And then when the students are involved in some projects exploring different ideas and giving a space to choose what to do, oftentimes students bring in a lot of interesting self into the assignments, which makes our conversation a lot richer. So I see a lot of opportunity for it and uh but i know that there's like a i probably in other courses there will be too many content to cover for example if i think about some of the required courses turning required like a required courses into making style i could imagine that there will be a lot of things that has to cover while changing the pedagogy will be really challenging but i think um, there's a lot of opportunities to really open up that space in assignments or class yeah. activities. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting us thinking about our own courses. and Yeah. This is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking with us. You're doing really groundbreaking work. And thank you so much. And we look forward to reading more about you and hearing more from you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And it's a wrap. The Children's Table is written by Anna Mae Duane, Kate Capshaw, and Victoria Ford-Smith. They are grateful for the assistance of Carly Runo-Hyde, who wears many hats, editor, producer, and collaborator, and creative genius. Our theme music is by Ken Comier. The podcast enjoys the support of Greenhouse Studios, in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Connecticut.